Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, and how are you this Wednesday, January 17th? It may not be the best day ever. It certainly isn't the warmest day ever, but I bet you're having a better day than Donald Trump is having. (laughs) He is uh, sitting in court, though he doesn't have to be there. He's sitting in court today in the E. Jean Carroll case. Uh, She won a defamation suit against him uh, because he said that she lied about accusing him of sexual assault. And the judge said, nah, you sexually assaulted her. She didn't lie. You lied. Um, here's $10 million, E. Jean Carroll. But before that procedure could even be finished, he went outside and he lied all over again. So E. Jean Carroll and her lawyer are back in court today, and they're saying, you know what? Before we wanted damages, now we want him punished. We want an amount of money that will be sending a signal to Donald Trump uh, that he isn't just being held to account, he is actually being punished for what he did. E. Jean Carroll um, taking the stand today in what was expected to be a um, very, very ugly cross-examination. You know, and a lot of times in, if it's a rape trial, they really, the defense does everything in their power um, to make the woman look bad, like she's a liar, she's a slut, she, you know, et cetera, and so forth. You know that. And um, the belief was that today that Trump's lawyers, when Eugene Carroll took the stand to talk about how all of this mess has affected her, that they were really, um, that Trump's lawyers were probably really going to go after her, really go after her in a hard way which sometimes can be kind of dangerous. Remember, he's already been found that he defamed her. He's already been labeled legally as having sexually assaulted her. The only thing that is being discussed right now in front of a jury is whether there should be additional financial punitive damages because he just can't stop. And you know what happened in court today? He couldn't stop. He couldn't stop talking. He's not on the stand. It's not that kind of talking. He's just sitting in court, apparently, with a running commentary about what's happening in a voice that everybody could hear. Like if you went to see some trial and you sat in the third row and you were like, oh, man, that judge really being tough on that lawyer. Who look at that defendant. That defendant sure doesn't look honest to me. Oh, my God, where'd they get those clothes? You know what the judge would do? The judge would have you removed from the courtroom. But because everybody bends over backwards to make sure little Donald Trump gets a super, super fair trial... He hasn't been removed from the courtroom, at least not yet. The judge already told him to be quiet. He continued making comments. The judge said that if he didn't stop, 
he would be removed from the courtroom. Hasn't been yet, but at least that threat has been made. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. So there's not going to be on the next um, Republican presidential debate. Um, ABC pulled the plug. Donald Trump, of course, wasn't going to be there. And Nikki Haley said, you know what? She's not going to be there either because she doesn't want to debate Ron DeSantis anymore. She considers herself the front runner. She wants to debate Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump isn't going to be there, no reason for her to be there either. And so rather than have um, Ron DeSantis show up and basically give us a hour-long campaign speech, the decision was made that it isn't going to happen. So uh, we will see now the debate after this one. This one was supposed to be Thursday. Um, CNN is supposed to do another debate um, early next week, I think. Um, and that's supposed to take place at New England College. We'll see if that one happens. Because, again, Donald Trump has made it clear he, he, there's no reason for him to show up. He's, he has nothing to gain and everything to lose. So he's not going to show up. And Nikki Haley, in her continuing effort to look like the main challenger to Donald Trump, said, well, you know, I don't want to debate Ron DeSantis. I want to debate Donald Trump. This is now him and me. And uh, so I I would imagine that um, same thing's going to happen next week, but I guess we'll see. <laughs> Ron DeSantis squeaked by Nikki Haley in Iowa by something like roughly two percentage points. But Nikki Haley is expected to have a stronger showing in New Hampshire. She didn't have much of a ground game. She didn't uh, have much of an organization in Iowa. And the one thing that uh, when you when you hear politicians talk about a ground game, part of that is getting people to vote. You know, talking to somebody, who are you going to vote for? Oh, uh, I was thinking of voting for Nikki Haley. Okay, um, you know, um, voting takes place tomorrow. Do you have a plan to get there? Oh, I don't know. My car's broken. Can we have somebody pick you up? Take you to the take you to the polls and bring you home. Well, I suppose so. That's a ground game, baby. That's you're going to vote for us. We're going to make sure you get there. And especially in Iowa with the weather so bad. People weren't going to. Um, a lot of people just stayed home. A lot of people weren't going to brave that weather. They didn't care enough. It didn't seem to matter enough. So uh, New Hampshire is our next race. There will be no presidential debate this week. And um, and Nikki Haley has decided that Ron DeSantis is no longer in the race. <laughs> that it's just her and Trump. Ron DeSantis has made it clear that at the very least... 
he is um, not only is he not going to drop out if he doesn't do well in New Hampshire, he's going to stick with it. He said, because, you know, after New Hampshire, we go to South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state, where um, she stands to be potentially humiliated. Ron DeSantis has made it clear he's in it for New Hampshire. He's in it for South Carolina. And I guess after that, we'll talk. But, um, you know, Nikki Haley released a new ad. And um, I could be wrong, but I don't think Ron DeSantis is named in it. Listen to Nikki's new ad. The two most disliked politicians in America, Trump and Biden, both are consumed by chaos, negativity, and grievances of the past. The better choice for a better America? Nikki Haley. I have a different style and approach. I'll fix our economy, close our border, and strengthen the cause of freedom. We need a new generation of conservative leadership to get it done. I'm Nikki Haley, and I approve this message. One of the people evaluating that ad said, did you notice there was no really the no specifics? It was really all platitudes. Mom, going to make this country better, greater. It's going to run faster. It's going to jump higher. Yeah. Why say anything uh, in an ad that can get you into trouble? Those are the kinds of comments getting into trouble. Those are the kinds of comments that you make in person. You know, when Nikki Haley had to have it dragged out of her that that actually the Civil War had to do with slavery. Yeah, she thought she could finesse that one. And then recently, her comment that the United States has never been a racist country. Oh, she does. She acknowledges that from time to time, racist things have happened. But as a country... No, no, no. We are. We have never been not just that we aren't right now, which would be outrageous enough, but we have never been a racist country. Never, never. (sighs) Political writer Keith Boykin um, in just a couple of minutes. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. um, Keith Boykin, who is about to release uh, a new political book, um, posted a response. citing history era by era, year by year. And um, he doesn't seem to think Nikki Haley knows what she's talking about. We'll be back right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Keith Boykin is a political writer. He's got a new book coming out, but uh, he thought, he's an African-American guy, by the way, he thought Nikki's Haley's statement that we have never been a racist country needed a little bit of annotation, uh, needed maybe some facts added to it. Listen to this. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says... We've never been a racist country. Let me take off my hat. A lot of politicians make the ridiculous argument that... America is not 
a racist country. But Nikki Haley goes one step farther. We've never been a racist country. In 1776, 41 of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. We've never been a racist country. In 1788, the U.S. Constitution counted black slaves as only three-fifths of a person. We've never been a racist country. In 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Dred Scott and all other black people were not citizens of the United States. We've never been a racist country. In 1861, Nikki Haley's own state of South Carolina declared war on the Union to defend slavery. We've never been a racist. In 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated after pushing Congress to pass the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. We've never been a racist country. In 1915, the popular racist film The Birth of a Nation portrayed the KKK as heroes trying to defend white people from black oppression. We've never been a racist country. In 1921, white people in Oklahoma killed dozens of black people and destroyed a thriving black community in the also race massacre. We've never been a racist country. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi, and 42-year-old Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a city bus in Alabama. We've never been a racist country. In 1961, civil rights activist John Lewis was beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma just for demanding the right to vote. We've never been a racist country. In 1963, four black girls were killed in a racist church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. We've never been a racist country. In 1968, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. We've never been a racist country. In 1976, Ronald Reagan ran for president, blaming welfare queens for white people's problems. We've never been a racist country. In 1986, Reagan vetoed a bill to impose sanctions on the racist apartheid government in South Africa. We've never been a racist country. In 1988, George Bush ran for president with a racist campaign scaring white voters about a black inmate he dubbed Willie Horton. We've never been a racist country. In 1989, Donald Trump called for the execution of five black and Latino teenagers wrongly accused of raping a white woman in New York Central Park. We've never been a racist country. In 1992, an all-white jury acquitted four white police officers for the videotaped beating of Rodney King. We've never been a racist country. In 2005, President Bush took days to respond to Hurricane Katrina when it struck the mostly black city of New Orleans. We've never been a racist country. In 2011, Donald Trump launched a five-and-a-half-year campaign questioning Barack Obama's birth certificate. We've never been a racist country. In 2015, a 21-year-old white supremacist in Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina murdered nine black people at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. We've never been a racist country. In 2020, Donald Trump tried to throw out millions of black votes in Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, and other cities. We've never been a racist country. And in 2024, white people in Iowa voted to return a twice-impeached, quadruple-indicted insurrectionist to public office. Office. We've never been a racist country. Even in Nikki Haley's own life. I faced racism when I was growing up. But aside from that... We've never been a racist country. Got it? Got it? We've never been a racist country. This woman just defies... You know, I understand what she's trying to do, but... She's not going to get the same kind of pass. You know, Donald Trump tells lie after lie after lie. And um, people are like, oh, you know, there's Donald doing it again. Nikki Haley doesn't get it. She's not going to get that same kind of consideration. People are going to look at all the different lies that she's put out and they're going to be like, no, just no. She's not going to be treated with kid gloves. 
Nobody thinks she's going to be the next president. Nobody thinks she's going to be the next vice president. And they're going to hold her feet to the fire. Just as she faced all that backlash, backlash, <laughs> blacklash, that too, uh, for saying that the Civil War was, oh, you know, that was over states' rights. You do understand that, right? It was a states' rights issue. Um, yeah. Keith Boykin, by the way, um, he, you know, I did say he does have a, a book coming out. He's also written New York Times bestsellers. He was the co-founder for the National Black Justice Coalition. He was a White House aide during the Clinton administration. Um, and he's also someone who has a passing knowledge of history, which apparently presidential candidate Nikki Haley does not. One other um, ad that I want to share with you, I didn't see this. I really do try to avoid Donald Trump in every way, shape or form. But in early January, apparently Trump posted a video and it was called God Made Trump. Mm -hmm. Apparently they used what some are considering a deep faked version of Paul Harvey's voice to do the voiceover. And it was all of this praise for Donald Trump. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. God said, I need someone to wake up before dawn, fix this country and work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting with the heads of state. So God made Trump. Oh, my God. I'm glad I missed it. But somebody at the Lincoln Project did not miss it. And um, they've created a video that they call God Made a Dictator. I don't know who they have in mind. Maybe there's a couple of veiled references to Donald Trump. Listen to this. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a man to test the will and goodness of a free people. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who failed in everything but theft and broken promises to live in a golden palace and convince the poor he serves their needs. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a wicked man to lead the common folk with hatred and fear. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a corrupt man who is above the law and immune from justice. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who will use violence to seize power. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man whose followers will call black white, call evil good, and call criminals hostages. So God made a dictator. God said, I need his political party to obey without question, and the press fear his wrath. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a cruel man who uses his power and position to punish and harm his opposition. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who breaks the faith of even his most godly followers and leads them to idolatry, place him above me. So God made a dictator. And then God said, I sent this man to test you, and until you cast him down, you have failed. So God made a dictator. <clears throat> yeah, not that any Donald Trump diehard supporters are going to hear that, but... Um, but at least we've we've responded to that nonsense with nonsense of our own. <laughs> you know, I've um, decided 
that I'm not going to get into it with any polling until we're really close to the election. Polling is a snapshot in time. Polling can be done very poorly. Polling can be done in a partisan way. And for the most part, I agree with Jen Psaki that until you're really close to the election, it's pretty much meaningless. Having said that, I do still read about the polls. I do still read the polls. I just don't talk about it much on this show. But I have to tell you, it's really interesting, uh, some of what I've been reading lately, because, you know, everything for a while was against Biden and Trump so popular. But lately I'm seeing polls that show, A, Biden increasing in popularity and the fact that pretty much they all show that Biden will beat Trump handily in a head-to-head contest. There was also an interesting poll that um, looked at Nikki Haley voters, people who really liked Nikki Haley, people who said, you know, she was um, definitely going to be um, the person they voted for. And there was even, I don't know if you saw the clip, there was a Fox reporter who um, was talking to a guy who said he was going to, he's a, said he's a Republican, he's going to vote for Nikki Haley. And the guy said, what if Nikki Haley isn't the nominee? What if it's Trump versus Biden? And without missing a beat, the guy looked at him and said, in that case, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And there was a a survey of Nikki Haley voters found that half of them, if they couldn't vote for Nikki Haley, they were going to vote for Biden. You'd think as, you know, Republican running for president that if she didn't get their vote, their votes would go to another Republican. But no. A lot of the Nikki Haley voters will vote for Biden. You know, Donald Trump, as I've said a million times, barring a major medical incident, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, even if he is convicted of something, even if he is convicted of something, because, as you know, having watched the court system, there are appeals and then there are appeals and then there are delays and then there are appeals, even if he is um, convicted of serious charges. He's still not going to drop out of the race. You know, he's not. This guy realizes at some level that he's in peril in a way that he has not been in peril for virtually all of his of his adult life. And he sees the presidency, aside from the fact that, you know, he wants to have desperate revenge over everybody. He sees the presidency as a get out of jail free card. You know, he's talking about, well, you know, I'll pardon all the January six people and I'll do this and I'll do that. He's mostly concerned about being able to derail all the federal cases against him. He's got to, in his mind, I think he feels that he's got to win this election if he wants to stay out of prison. There's there's definitely a part of him that is operating out of fear. And it's a legitimate fear. I've said before, there isn't a a judge who's going to send him to jail 
while he's running for president. But he if he goes up against Joe Biden and he loses, all bets are off. He's just a normal citizen after that. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to welcome to our show Devin Ambres, who's the Senior Director of Courts and Legal Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Welcome, Devin. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Devin, uh, let's start by talking about Donald Trump's argument that uh, presidents have immunity no matter what they do. Because, you know, Devin, I heard his speech. He's not just doing making this argument for himself. He's even he's even wanting to protect Joe Biden and every president that comes after him. Because, you know, Devin, presidents won't do anything if they think that um, they could be prosecuted for it. You do understand that, right? <laughs> uh, I thought you might have been speaking uh, out of both sides of his mouth when he was saying that. But, yeah, that's uh, an interesting argument. You know, because he's just he's just that kind of guy. He's a he's a statesman and he thinks of the big picture and the historical uh, consequences of. No, no, it is. It's all about him. Of course, it's all about him. Um, so t- tell the audience, explain to the audience much better than I just did about what it is he would like to happen, have happen. Oh, I, I believe the word is uh, uh, maybe a self-pardon. I don't know if you've been paying <laughs> attention to the E. Jean Carroll case today, but he's acting like a petulant child at the defendant's table, flapping his hands, muttering under his <sighs> breath in the voice of the jury, uh, except that he wants to do that writ large. Uh, I, I explained a little earlier this week to somebody else that, you know, he wants immunity from both civil action, defaming Eugene Carroll, which is not possible because we see he's already been found guilty of sexually assaulting her, of defaming her. He's been fined five million or charged five million dollars. He's in a second lawsuit. But now it's a matter of I can do anything I want anytime, no matter what. And it's legal. It's like what Nixon said. If the president does it, it's not illegal. There you go. Um, from what I've heard, there are at least some people who believe that the Supreme Court um, is not enthusiastic about that argument. I'm sure it helped a lot when uh, Lena Haba said, Kavanaugh better come through because he owes us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that just made Brett Kavanaugh want to just, you know, jump right in and <laughs> do everything possible to help Trump. We- we we keep joking that they're saying the quiet part out loud, but uh, to, to, to a certain degree, it rationalizes what they're doing when they're projecting what they're doing. They're putting it out into the universe and people are saying, of course, that's exactly what's going to happen and, and speaking it into reality, unfortunately. But I do think you're right that the Supreme Court, despite being incredibly conservative, uh, is is not willing to go as far as Donald Trump would have them go, which yeah, would effectively make all presidents kings. And we got rid of that in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution when we decided that the divine right of kings was not something that we believed in in the United States. And um, I think that this, how do you, do you have any sense for how the Supreme Court is going to rule on this idea? Um, We've seen in Colorado and Maine where they're ready to prevent 
Donald Trump from running in the Republican primary because of his um, involvement with the insurrection. Any sense of how the Supreme Court is going to go on that? I don't want to speak anything into existence, but I think that there is a very, very reasonable interpretation of uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that says engaging in insurrection is self-effectuating and that if you a very plain reading, an originalist reading, and a textualist reading of it would indicate that Donald Trump is not supposed to be on the ballot because he engaged in insurrection. Now, whether the Supreme Court tries to get around that on some type of technicality, I, again, I don't want to speak that into existence, but I think that that's what we're looking at. However, if they stuck to their guns from an originalism and textualist standpoint, they would keep him off the ballot. Well, I'm sure, you know, we can count on Clarence Thomas to vote against him no matter what case is uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, oh, you know, if, because if, if he's the, if there's anybody that stands up for uh, the Constitution, it's Clarence Thomas. I mean, an, an originalist to the bone, Justice Thomas is. Uh, he should recuse himself from quite literally everything under the sun at this point. But Justice Thomas has flouted the ethics laws for so long, and the ethics proposal that they, all the justices signed on to, is so toothless that it affects, effectually is nothing. It's, it's, it's gaslighting the American people by saying, we have this ethics rule, but nobody's abiding by it. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and nobody can enforce it. Um you know, it's yeah, we we put this code of conduct in place <laughs> and we'll follow it if we feel like it. Um, you know, I was just thinking to myself that I'm not usually this cynical and this cranky. Um, and I apologize for that, uh, Devin. But one thing that you made reference to at the top of this discussion, I think, is really bugging me. Donald Trump, even with the l- judges who are trying to follow the rule of law and keep their cases on track. Each and every one of these judges is really, really bending over backwards to give him the benefit of every doubt. And the E. Jean Carroll thing just infuriates me. Devin, if you were in that courtroom and you were muttering a running commentary, do you think the judge would let you continue to sit there or do you think you would be escorted out? I'm pretty sure that I would be escorted out. And there was an actual back and forth where Judge Kaplan said, I'm sure that you want me to toss you out on your ear, paraphrasing, and quoting former President Trump. He said, I would love that. And the fact of the matter is you and I, well, you have uh, you have a, a broad audience. Myself, I, I think I have 38 followers on Twitter, and they're not going to be up in arms if somebody is mean to me. (laughs) I would be, Devin. Well, thank you. But yeah, so, I mean, Donald Trump has 100 million followers on Twitter who've already shown a penchant for violence and bomb threats. And but also the judges are protecting themselves from the the inevitable appeal and showing that they are fair and that they are 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 being as equitable and even-handed as they can with a person who is going to game the system every opportunity. Yeah, I've been I've been reading that uh, Judge Engeron, who is, of course, hearing uh, the New York. Oh, OK, I get my judges and my cases. He's the New York guy um, yes. that he has been 
you know, basically giving Trump as as much rope as he possibly can just so that he will short circuit potential appeals arguments. Well, the judge didn't let me speak. The judge didn't let me do this. They know the judge. And um, and and I think that there might be some of that. Also, you're right in in the E. Jean Carroll thing that, um, you know, and and frankly, these court appearances, like he doesn't have to be at the E. Jean Carroll case. His presence is not required in the in the courtroom. But she's testifying today, and I'm sure he thinks somehow him being there is going to rattle her. Plus, as I'm sure you've seen, Devin, he makes a court appearance, and uh, his fundraising goes through the roof for 24 hours. It's 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 campaigning for him, isn't it? Uh, it is, and I would never accuse the former president of engaging in anything like witness intimidation. But uh, that's you know, one of us. These are, these- these are things that are happening here. And, you know, you're right. He, he, he goes and he gets, he gets the free coverage out of all of it because that's what we're talking. We're not talking about the fact that E.G. and Carol's life has been made a living hell, that she has been harassed, that she has been threatened, that she was sexually assaulted. We're talking about Donald Trump acting like a petulant baby. Uh-huh. at the trial instead of the substance of the matter. And we need to not focus on the horse race. We need to not focus on his antics. We need to say, what is the substance of what he is doing? And the substance of what he is doing is trying to pull this country apart at the seams. Yeah. And, you know, you make a good point because it is it is hell. It doesn't matter if E. Jean Carroll is in the right You know, it doesn't matter if she has God on her side, what she is going through, both what we see publicly and what is going on privately. You can't you you can't imagine. I was once very involved in a very ugly lawsuit that never even came to trial. It was all settled ahead of time. And I'm telling you. It was, I had God on my side. I was in the right. You know, I was the big winner. And it was still just a living hell to go through. Um, and, you know, I saw a video of her. Uh, I don't know if it was a lunch break or whatever, being escorted away with her lawyer, her main lawyer on one side. And there was another person on the other side. And they were all but holding her up. Uh, you know, the woman has lost so much weight. I mean, she's like a she's like a scarecrow. And they each had one of her arms. And I'm sure they were doing that, you know, just to keep her upright. I mean, the cost to this woman, it, the personal cost is just really incalculable. And you're right. We should be at saying what an amazing person she is, how tough she's being, how strong she's being. And forget about talking about her assaulter in in court thank you thank you for that Devin. you make a very good point thank you yeah i mean uh, as a lawyer it's 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 watching what your clients go through in litigation is for 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 people like donald trump it's just dollars and cents for lawyers it's a job but for folks like eugene carroll it is their life it is everything that they are and everything that they've been through, and we cannot forget about the victims in these cases. 
Um, something else that I wanted to talk to you about is something that you're going to need to give me some background on. There's this um, other case before the Supreme Court that um, has a potential to affect uh, federal agencies and how they work. And for some of us who like to, you know, follow politics and campaigns and that this can seem almost a little too complex for us. But this is really, really important. I think it's called Lope Bright. Is that correct? Yeah. Tell yes. me about trigger it. Warning. I'm, I'm, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about administrative law, which is controlled <laughs> as a sleep-inducing substance by the DEA. <laughs> um, no. So, I, so this is two cases, Loper, Bright, and Relentless. And it's part of a, a trifecta of cases that the court is going to hear this term between uh, a case called Jarchese that was argued in December, Loper, Bright, Relentless were argued today, and Corner Post, uh, which is being argued next week. And the short uh, nutshell of this is this term, the Supreme Court is going to determine whether modern functional governance that has been in effect since the 1930s is constitutional, and they seem to be leaning now. Um, so it's it's really disturbing. The power grab that this, that this uh, ultra-conservative Supreme Court is undertaking, they are not politically accountable, and yet they're taking all of the power away from the agencies that protect me, you, and your mother from bad actors and corporate profiteers and putting it into the hands of conservative and unelected judges. Um, to break it down a little bit more, um, clean air, out the window. Clean water, out the window. Whether the FDA can regulate a new uh, a new pill that controls cholesterol as a dietary supplement or a drug that requires FDA testing, judges get to decide that. Whether unions get to organize, judges get to decide that. Whether workplace safety conditions are appropriate to prevent people from getting harmed on the job, judges get to decide that. Whether you uh, can avoid having your wages stolen and are eligible for overtime, judges get to decide that. It's no longer a matter of agencies. It's going to be a matter of judges getting to decide every facet of federal regulation. And I was reading a little bit about this just this morning, and I was stunned because the person who was writing was like, well, yeah, there are there are years of precedent upholding these kinds of of provisions. And so not only would this be a stunning power grab, once again, they would be pretty much just thumbing their nose at precedent, wouldn't they? Forty years of precedent overturned in the snap of the fingers. 19,000 times Chevron doctrine, uh, which is what all of this is based on. And, and I'm sorry, let me even back up. Chevron doctrine says that if if agencies are given statutory authority to do something and the, and the statute is either ambiguous, meaning, you know, we could interpret it a couple different ways, or it's silent about it, well, agency, the experts at agencies, the people who are career civil servants, they've been studying for years and they have PhDs and, and master's degrees and, and know the ins and outs of every tiny little technical detail of things. They're the ones who are like, okay, this is what maintaining health and safety means. This is what a pollutant means. This is how we define overtime or how we define a geographic region of a hospital for Medicare reimbursement purposes. They're the ones who get to decide what that means. Um, and like I said, it's been used 19,000 times, and now the courts are going to say, no, 
we get to decide that. And Justice Kavanaugh was very upset that, you know, sometimes agencies flip-flop on their rules every four to eight years. And I'm going to tell you a secret. That's because federal agencies are politically accountable and they are able to change based on the policy preferences of the American people when they vote for president. However, if the justices set everything in stone, well, that takes away the political accountability of agencies. It chills them and prevents them from protecting you from corporate profiteers and people who want to extract every nickel from you that they can without giving a damn about how it affects the rest of society. I don't like this, Devin. And, uh, and, and if, if, this, if the court makes this kind of a power grab, can Congress step in and, and do well, something? I mean, the, I mean, is there something so, the, so there, the executive there, branch can do? This seems like a, just a breathtaking overreach. Uh, I don't disagree with you. Um, so Congress, there, there's been a number of things. Congress could potentially codify what is known as Chevron doctrine, requiring that deference be given to agencies. They could be explicit. And things, but you know the fact of the matter is we're, we've got this entrenched, super ultra conservative supermajority in the Supreme Court based on life expectancy. We're looking at it for thirty years, and the fact of the matter is we need significant structural reforms to the court. We need to be able to enforce recusal rules against people like Justices Alito and Justice Thomas who may have involvement and interest in cases like the 14th Amendment or who have, you know, billionaire, their billionaire patrons um, presenting cases before the Supreme Court. We need, we need those ethics rules, and we need to have really real structural terms like term li- or real structural changes to the court like term limits um, to be able to hold people accountable and provide some type of accountability for things that are happening. Because right now, uh, the the court is only going to get more and more out of control. Do, do they understand that if in 2024 we get a significant majority in the Senate and the House and we retain the White House, that they are looking at some serious court reform. I mean, Joe Biden so far has resisted any and all calls to expand the court, but I think he also knows that there's no way he has the power to pull something like that off right now. But if that situation changed and it was a viable option for him, you know, I don't do they do they understand the big picture here? How much if if they do things that people hate this much that it will come back to haunt them or do are they just concerned with the right here right now and not going to worry about what ifs? Well, from from your lips to the president and the Senate Judiciary Committee's ears, um I think it's important that we start talking about the need for these real structural reforms to the court. It's uh, you know, but but the other thing is, is that's what the folks on the right are doing. They are saying, uh, you know, they want to everybody to feel helpless. They want everybody to feel hopeless. They want people to feel dejected and like they're powerless. And the fact of the matter is, people are not powerless. Your voice makes a difference. Your voice can make change. And we have to make sure that the people in power hear that, the people on the Supreme Court hear that, and, and we make those efforts. We can't sit silent 
And we can't feel dejected. We have to continue fighting. And that's the hardest thing to do, because after four years of Trump and the pandemic and just the general vibes that are kicking around, people are exhausted. People are exhausted. And you you have to just remember that I matter and and I can make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, they're supposed to be above the fray, you know, lifetime appointments and all that. But they do. They listen and they read and they are aware when the public thinks that they have gone in the wrong direction or too far. And you know that because all of a sudden one of the justices will appear somewhere to give a speech and he'll be refuting like whatever. Well, you know, we're not this and we're not that. Well, you know, so they're paying attention to the criticism they get. They absolutely are. Um, Devin, if you don't mind, we've got a caller um, who'd like to weigh in on this discussion. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Go ahead, Paul. Hi, John. Thank you. Hi, Devin. Uh, yeah, the the Chevron rule, the court has been playing word games with that almost since it started. And I, I don't know, I, I, I didn't catch if you explained what it is, that it, but it started in Chevron versus NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, in 1982, I think it was. Um, we gave kind of a cliff notes of, um, on that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That that uh, I guess the upshot of it started out with with the EPA. And by the way, Brett Kavanaugh's mother, or no, sorry, uh, yep. Neil Gorsuch's mother. Yeah, it was, it was, was his mom. Huh? It was his mom. Gorsuch, yeah. right. She was head of the EPA yeah. at the time. Right. Okay. So. The, the idea is that if the law, the text of the law is not clear or doesn't doesn't address the question at hand, that the court will defer to the regulatory agency. If the law is clear, then the court will, you know, will um, will make its ruling based on the text of the law. Well, in 1996, in uh, FDA versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco, they, they turned it on its head by saying that, well, the law is definitely clear. Congress says that the FDA can regulate tobacco. Um because it says regulate the, the drug and or the method of delivery, and a, clearly a cigarette are method of delivery. The FDA wanted to prohibit uh, sale of cigarettes to minors under 18, under the age of 18. But they said, yeah, clearly the law says that Congress or that the FDA can regulate. But since it's so clear, we will decide how the text applies. And clearly, in other words, we're not going to defer to the regulatory agency because the text is clear that you can regulate. So therefore, we'll say that clearly Congress didn't intend for, uh, and it says you could, that Congress could actually prohibit the drug altogether. And they said, but since you haven't, it's clear that Congress did not intend for uh, 18-year-olds, you know, minors not to, buy the, not to buy tobacco. I mean, they just, the wording just turned the whole concept on its head uh, by saying, you know, it's kind of like you're six of one, half dozen of the other. They've been playing word games with it all along, and, yeah, I think they're going to. But Congress, to answer the, the bigger question is, yes, Congress could absolutely do something because the, the Constitution allows for Congress to regulate the court in some ways. And because Congress created the regulatory agencies, they certainly would have a voice in, in uh, because of uh, political powers, uh, separation of powers. Yeah, we have to have a Congress that will defend those those regulatory agencies, and they can. But would you agree with that, Devin? Um, that, was, that was a long question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, 
I, I think I, I think I agree, but I don't want to like wholeheartedly go into it because we talked about 40 years of uh, jurisprudence there. But I think you had some good points that, you know, justices are going to play with language any way they can. Um, this is the, the Chevron doctrine has been a, a pretty strong stopgap in preventing lower court justice, judges from uh, from overstepping their their bounds. Um, I think. You know, there's there's the question of that. That's what they were talking about during oral argument today. Um, you know, what is a legal question? What is a policy question? And the proponents of of overturning Chevron said, well, everything effectively is a legal question, and everything requires de novo review, and their courts should put their imprimatur on everything, um, which isn't a way that is feasibly functional given the nature of modern governance. Um, you know, there's 776 district court judges, all of whom are going to have different opinions about everything. And having a, as, as we say in the legal community, stare decisis or guiding light is useful in being able to, to enunciate first principles as to whether a, a regulation should stand as a policy initiative or a legal question that requires de novo review. And under the, and sorry, I'm getting way too technical and nerdy. Uh, <laughs> Let's let's meet. Let me take this back so we can um, put this on a more shallow footing, if if we Thanks. will, Devin. Um, yeah. Has the Supreme Court officially heard all the arguments in these in this case? And when can yeah. we expect to hear from them? Well, um, on cases like this that could send shockwaves through the legal community, we generally expect the. Um, the the cases to be decided on the absolute last day of the term so they can uh, run away exactly so i would expect an opinion on this on june 30th um if something comes out beforehand i think that that means less damage has been done and uh solicitor general preligar provided a wonderful off-ramp for the justices to provide lower court judges, uh, you know, some ideas of where to go, like actually exhaust your statutory interpretation toolkit before falling back on Chevron. It's a great way to do things. And then uh, we don't and we then we maintain this this, you know, guiding principle. Hmm. Um, we don't have enough time to start this discussion now, but Devin, I'd like to bring you back some time and have a discussion about the legitimacy um, and the faith or lack thereof that people have in the Supreme Court. I was reminded of this. My partner and I, a few days ago, watched the um, final episode of Fargo. And, you know, I think sometimes what popular culture is reflected in the 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 shows the the scripts that are written and one character was talking to one character who was going to be appealing a, a court ruling and the, and the first character said you know i'm the single largest donor to the federalist society and the other guy was like well what does that mean and she was like that means that i own the judges and i I think there's a lot of people who believe that our judges are available to be owned. But like I said, sorry to introduce this topic. I have to get you back on the schedule because um, I would love to hear your thoughts and insights on, on that one. Uh, well, they- I would I, I would I would pr- plug ProPublica to your listeners. They did a wonderful expose on Leonard Leo and all his friends in the Federalist Society and how they have uh, – the remade the courts in their own perverse image. 
Yes. Um, I think we talked about that when it when it first um, when it first was posted, but it's always worth a revisit. As are you, yeah. Devin Ombres. Um, I well, hope you will come back and join us again another time. Anytime you'll have me, I'm happy to join. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, he's the senior director of courts and legal policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after that. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. You know, I'm starting to think that I might be psychic. The last two times I have decided that I wanted to reach out to Michael Hawthorne, the Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter, and just bring him back for a discussion. Both times the EPA decided to make big announcements, and I look like I'm somehow being, uh, uh, like I have the ability to see into the future, which I don't know, Michael, maybe I do, maybe I do, but maybe I just miss talking to you when you haven't been here for a while. Happy New Year. How well, are you? I'm happy New Year to you, my friend, and, uh, you know, it's always good to be with you. It's always good to have you here. So um, I'm trying to remember what it was one of those Washington Post, big red banners, EPA makes big announcement. Only right now I'm blanking on what the second big announcement was. Can you refresh uh, they, my memory? They, they've made so many in, in recent <laughs> times. I think you were talking about uh, they did announce last week that they were going to start fining uh, companies for methane uh, releases. You know, so gas companies, the oil industry. Um, yes. Methane is a really potent, uh, you know, it's the main ingredient in, in, ga- in gas that heats our homes and, and a lot of people use for cooking. Um, it, but a lot of it leaks into the a- atmosphere and it's very potent as a greenhouse gas. So it's while it's not as prevalent in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide is, um, you know, the, the chief cause of, of climate change, um, the the intensity of methane makes it a a so-called super pollutant. Uh, And right now, uh, the the companies that are fracking for gas and oil in places like Pennsylvania and the Permian Basin in Texas, um, they essentially just let the stuff go up in the atmosphere. they're, They're making so much money off of these wells that they don't do anything to stop the leaks. And so it's been a long time coming. Um, there's research out there uh, where special cameras are used that can see the leaks. And so, uh, actually, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I think a few years ago, the New York Times went around in Texas and just used one of these special cameras with this special lens on it. And it was it's crazy how much of the methane was was released, you know, being released from you know the piping and whatnot at these fracking sites. And wow. um, so, you know, I've always thought of it, is, it, it just seems ludicrous because that's something that could be used to heat someone's home or it could be shipped to Ukraine to help, you know, deal with the, uh, the cutoff of Russian gas or, you know, Europe the same way. Um, you, you, you can see it as a, as a foreign policy um, and national security issue too. Uh, but then it's just so wasteful. It just seems dumb, right? And uh, 
So, you know, the gas industry is an oil and gas industry is still very influential. Um, they now give most of their money to Republicans. And, you know, they were big backers of of Donald Trump. Uh, and so, you know, the the Biden EPA here following the science and the policy objectives that have been discussed for a, a long time. But but, you know, multiple presidents, you know, the Obama administration didn't do anything about it. Um, you know, this this has been a pretty well documented problem for some time now, and especially when the fracking boom went crazy in Texas and Pennsylvania and other states, um, it's become more of a problem here in our country. When it comes to sources of methane as as a pollutant, are these fracking leaks like Right up at the top, because, you know, you always hear people say, oh, well, you know, um, cows produce more methane than than any other uh, polluting source. They, they, they do. Yeah, they do. They do. Actually, cows do. And, and that's been an, uh, an issue in terms of how can that be controlled? Because cows are ruminants. And so they've got multiple stomachs and they're constantly belching up, you know, what 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 they've eaten. And uh, and those belches and their and their uh, you know other gases gaseous uh, eruptions uh, are are a big source of methane, and especially when you consider all these large uh, factory farm dairies that are all over the country now. Um, that's a tougher thing to get at because how do you stop an animal from belching? Right, that 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 that's part of its digestion. Um, there are some. Um, ideas that if you change the food or add, you know, some different things to their food, that it could cut down on the methane coming out of out of those, uh, you know, as the as the UN put it, uh, uh, belches and farts. Actually, they used that in a in a in a little pocket guide to climate change a few years ago, and you know, got okay. a big chuckle out of that. Um, and, you know, and then once again, agriculture is also a, you know a very uh, uh, politically potent industry as well, especially large agriculture. And um, so, you know, the, the fracking issues, the, the leaks and, uh, you know, the, the, the pipes that aren't fully sealed and whatnot, that's easier to get at. And, um, you know, make these companies, you know, actually follow the law, follow regulations that, that, that are a long time coming and, and stop being so wasteful. Is that why... It's always uh, recommended that if you really care about the environment, you'll eat less meat, you know, eat more, more plants, eat less meat. Is that part of why that argument is made? Yeah, it's more that everything that goes into raising animals. Or the raising water use and, and, water and use. the plants that are grown to feed the animals exactly. and all that. Exactly. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. And then also and then also just from a diet standpoint of. Uh, you know, red meat, uh, you know, has a lot of issues, um, you know, in terms of cholesterol and, and uh, you know, other health issues that don't necessarily have to do with the environment, have to, has to do with our, our longevity. So, uh, you know, that's why a lot of, you know, doctors recommend the Mediterranean diet, for example, uh, which is one of the only diets to actually be scientifically proven to actually work. And, you know, there's almost no red meat in the Mediterranean diet. One of the uh, things along these lines, kind of tangential, I was reading in the L.A. Times about how there's they're undertaking a big effort there 
I think under the auspices of the EPA, to try to store carbon dioxide, if I'm not mistaken, in the ground. They're using these old oil fields and they're trying to store uh, store carbon dioxide in in the ground, uh, deep underground. I don't know anything about this. Can can you explain how well, this? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a big issue here in the Midwest as well because really? uh, ethanol companies are planning and 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 proposing a bunch of carbon pipelines that would pump carbon dioxide, and uh, you know, right now they all would end up in downstate Illinois. Um, so, you know, stretching from the Dakotas into Iowa and Minnesota, and then all, uh, you know, across the Mississippi into Illinois, and 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 bury the carbon dioxide, you know, from the from the manufacturing of ethanol uh, in you know deep sandstone formations here in Illinois. Yeah, that's uh, what this article says. It's, that it's, in it's, California, it's, it's very yeah, it's very controversial in the Midwest. A lot of landowners don't want these pipes going through, you know, their property. Um, one company actually has withdrawn its proposal because there was so much opposition to it in um, in both uh, Iowa and Illinois. Um, and there is an issue, that, uh, a fear based on a few incidents that have actually happened where these carbon dioxide pipelines rupture and cause all, you know, wreak all kinds of havoc. Um, and, you know, there's also the question, can it stay underground? Um, and, uh, you, but, but you, you see this now with the coal industry as well, what's left of it. You know, there's still a lot of coal-fired power plants in this country. And a big part of the, um, of the Biden congressional uh, infrastructure legislation that was, you know, passed in the last few years, there are a lot of incentives for this so-called carbon capture and storage. Um, you know, some scientists say it's still not ready for prime time, that it uses more energy than, uh, you know, it would basically require uh, a lot of energy to be used to get it underground. Um, there was a big plant that was uh, built in Texas um, that utilize this technology and they had to build another power plant just to have enough electricity to inject the carbon dioxide uh. underground and then it wasn't worth operating so they the owners of that plant shut it down now there are some plans that potentially it would open up again um, a similar situation in in uh, Mississippi where ratepayers were on the hook for this what was supposed to be the cleanest coal-fired power plant ever built. And uh, in the end, um, it, it turned out to be a big gas plant and a very, very expensive gas plant at that. And it's not uh, taking care of any of the carbon dioxide. Now, it, it, this is used already in the oil industry in Texas and places like that. When wells start uh, kind of petering out, um, they, they pump carbon dioxide into the wells and get more oil out of them. Um, so it can be done, uh, but but it, you know. Uh, in, so in this so long, wait a minute. When you do when you pump answer, in carbon really dioxide unclear. to get more oil out, does the carbon dioxide take the place of the oil? It's like it, it pushes it out and sits yep. there. Yep. Yep. So you know, and and then there's fears. Uh, you know, here in Illinois, also, you know, we are on. Uh, you know, downstate there are a few. Uh, 
you know, faults, earthquake faults. A new Madrid a fault. The New Madrid fault, and and it's and it's you know uh, and it's uh, you know associated um, faults. Uh, you know the New Madrid fault, many 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 years ago, actually changed the course of the uh, of the Mississippi River, uh, the, and the river ran backwards at one point because of a massive earthquake. Um, and wow. so the fear is, and this has happened in this has happened with some of the fracking in Oklahoma, for example, what it. The fracking and the injection of chemicals and, uh, you know, other things into these wells to get the gas and oil out has actually triggered earthquakes. Um, So that's another fear uh, with carbon capture and storage. And, you know, well, let me ask you a question. It's going to be a problem with these gas plants as well. Yeah. You, the the way this works is they liquefy the carbon dioxide and then they pump it into, as you said, here in the Midwest, sandstone. And in Los Angeles, they just described it as being pumped into porous rock. OK, but what what is what is keeping it there? Couldn't it leach back out? I mean, is this well, that's, that's one of the is this going to get into the aquifers? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a fear as well. There is a small scale experiment that's been going on, funded by the Department of Energy in Decatur downstate, uh, where Archer, da- Archer Daniels Midland has a big ethanol plant. And so they've been doing that on a very small scale for oh, almost a decade now. And 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 so some people say, look at that. Look at that uh, you know, demonstration project. This technology works well. Maybe in the small amounts of carbon dioxide that are being sequestered, as they say at that site. But if you take like a giant coal-fired power plant, like the Prairie State plant in in, in uh, southern Illinois, which is the largest source of industrial source of, of climate change pollution built in this country in a quarter century, um, you know, all of that carbon dioxide from burning all of that coal is going straight up into the atmosphere. And Prairie State, at last count, was maybe, I think, the seventh largest greenhouse gas emitter in the entire country. Um, and uh, when President, oh, I'm sorry, when Governor Pritzker and the Illinois General Assembly passed uh, clean energy legislation a few years ago, uh, Prairie State got a bit of a cutout. Um, they get to stay open longer, and the idea is, you know, they're going to get funding for a demonstration project there to try to store carbon dioxide near where the plant is. Um, you know, if they can't do it, they're going to have to start cut, cutting back the electric generation from that power plant. Um, and that means cities like Naperville and St. Charles and Winnetka that are municipal investors in that plant could be stuck paying off the debt for it, but not getting any of the electricity. Well, that sucks. <laughs> Well, they, they made that, you know, everybody was pulling back from from funding these things. I've written about this uh, plant several times in the financial scheme. Uh, it was it was designed and, and uh, built on behalf of Peabody, which is the largest was the largest private coal company in the world. And um, and uh, Peabody only had a five percent stake at the end. So all of these municipalities across the Midwest are stuck paying uh, the tab for building the plant costs increase more than two times than what they said it was going to. And then they've got the big climate change problem, right? It's a lot of carbon dioxide going up into the air. And, you know, there are other sources of electricity now, uh, not just not just gas, but, uh, you know, renewables are, are increasingly um, 
cost competitive, in fact, cheaper in many cases. And, and I, I, uh, I actually found by looking at uh, records, the financial records of that Prairie State plan a few years ago, uh, where some municipal municipal power organizations, um, where they had you know bunch of different sources of electricity, that wind was far cheaper than this coal plant, and so the promises made and the decisions made by elected officials in places like Naperville and Batavia and Geneva. Um, other 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 municipalities, uh, you know, it, it didn't it didn't end up being the bargain that 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 Peabody and and, and others said it was going to be, and, and then we're stuck with the climate problem. So, um, you know, whether carbon capture is going to be a solution, you know, the Biden administration says it is, it's ready to go. A lot of people are skeptical about that based on what the uh, history of it has been so far, at least in that industry. If you're moving into a new house, Michael, right now, and you have a choice between an electric stove, a gas stove, an induction cooktop, uh, what would be the most environmentally responsible choice? Uh, the induction. I mean, it, it. you know, everything that I've read about induction uh, and seen about it, it, you know, number one, as soon as you lift the a plate off, or I'm sorry, a pan, skillet, whatever, off of a induction cooktop, it's immediately cooled to the touch. Uh, and you're not, you know, you're not emitting methane, uh, you know, a, a, a gas that also has a lot of particulate matter in it when it's burned. Um, you know, studies at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and, and in other places have found that unvented gas stoves are essentially emitting into your home as much small, fine particulate matter that's lung damaging and causes all kinds of other problems as if you were basically like breathing out of a gas or a tailpipe of, a, of an automobile. Um, and, you know, the gas industry has gone out of its way um, in taking municipalities to court and winning so far. Uh, municipalities like Berkeley, California, and you know the state of you know, New York, city of New York, they're banning uh, gas hookups in new construction, um, and so the gas industry is trying really, really hard to prevent that. And in a lot of Republican-controlled states, they've banned municipalities from banning gas hookups. Um, so you know, and, and you know, here in Illinois, in the Chicago area, you've got People's Gas is going around digging up streets, spending billions of dollars of our ratepayer money, uh, replacing aging, leaking gas pipes. And by the time this project is expected, you know, is expected to be done, you know, 2040, I think is the, is the, is the timeline now, you know, are we still going to be using gas, right? That's the question. Okay. Well, um, if I get an induction cooktop, though, I still have to have either an electric or a gas oven. I I, I don't think there's anything as, like an induction oven, right? No, so, but 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 electric isn't going to you know electricity at least now you know and and in some I think ComEd does have some incentives you know for for doing that from for switching to electric. Uh, they're generally more efficient. Uh, and once again, they're not releasing dangerous pollution into your home. So if anything, if you still have a gas stove, always use the range hood uh, because that's going to at least get vent a lot of that 
out of your home. Um, you know, hopefully it was installed correctly and it's actually going outside instead of just recirculating into your kitchen. So even if I'm not like burning something, which usually, Michael, I am. So I usually have the vent on uh, so that I don't smoke out my family. But even if I'm just like cooking soup, I should have the vent turned on. Yes. Yeah, that's 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 the advice. And because they've actually, you know, had particulate matter uh, sensors, you know, near stoves when they're operating. And, and, you know, when you have the hood on, when you don't have the hood on. Uh, and the other, the other um, concern is that as stoves get older, they tend to leak. And, you know, you're not, you're not doing the kind of tune-up on your gas stove that you're doing with other things like, say, your furnace or something like that. And so even when your stove is off, it can be leaking gas. Which this is, you know, it blows your mind. Um, and you know, I made the mistake a few years ago. Well, you know, we redid our kitchen. Really thankfully, thankful we did. Um, you know, it was a little dark and dreary before. Now it's bright, but we went gas again. And uh, if I, you know, had to do it over now, I would have, I would have gotten induction. That said, the technology and the prices of induction, the te- te- technology has gotten better. And because of more companies making induction stoves, the prices have, have dropped. And so it's you know more reasonable now if, if you have that opportunity. So um, does that also mean we should change out like gas furnaces? Well, there, so there's a real you know debate about that in the Midwest and you know colder climates. Um, you know, a lot of people say who study climate change is to really deal with this, we're going to have to essentially electrify everything. And um, that would mean using heat pumps instead of instead of uh, of gas furnaces. So, you know, the once again, the, the gas industry has done a lot to try to spread uh, misinformation about uh, the efficiency of and 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 uh, and practicality of heat pumps in cold climates. But, you know, there's also evidence in, say, Norway, where, you know, pretty much everybody has a heat pump. And in now in places like Germany, because of what happened with the, with Russia invading Ukraine and then Western Europe cutting off essentially all gas imports from, from Russia, you know, they're on a um, crash course in, in getting heat pumps into people's homes. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden there's no gas and no heat, right? Um, you know, I think you. what I've been told is that, you know, they're efficient enough now in the Midwest that they're going to work in almost every condition. And some people, you know, they, there are options that I've, I've, I've looked into where there's still a gas hookup and it only kicks on if the, um, if the heat pump is really struggling to maintain its, you know, its ability to heat your home in the winter. Um, but, you know, essentially what it's doing is it, it's, it's exchanging air. And in the, in the summer, it's going to make your home cooler. And in the you know, winter, it's going to make it warmer. And, um, you know, again, there are incentives. I believe a lot of utilities, electric utilities like ComEd have incentives to to go with uh, with with heat pumps and and you know the Biden administration also again part of the uh, part of those big infrastructure bills 
there's a lot of incentives for going to heat pumps and getting away from gas furnaces as well. Wow. Michael, as always, it is uh, just amazing to talk with you and find out what is going on and what is of concern. Um, I... um there were some topics today that I didn't even get to, so I'm going to ask you uh, to come back um, because I just, you know, we started on this and it just I found it so fascinating. Thank you for taking the time uh, to join us today. Love your stuff in the Tribune. Really excellent reporting. Thanks so much, Joan. Always good to be with you. Michael Hawthorne, Trib uh, Environmental and Public Health Reporter. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. When we were at uh, Netroots last time, I talked to a number of really fascinating people doing great work. Uh, today, I'm going to be revisiting one of those interviews with uh, a line of questioning that's very timely. We just heard Michael Hawthorne, the Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter. Now we're going to look at the political side of uh, climate work uh, with an organization called Climate cabinet. It was started by Carolyn Spears. We talked to her at Netroots and she is back to chat with us again today. Hello, Carolyn. How are you? I'm great. Um, How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. You guys have quite a record. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a big part of the work that Climate Cabinet does is looking at this whole issue from the political side. Who are the candidates who are best suited to take on these issues and have success with them and and identifying those people, and especially if they're new to politics, helping them get their campaigns off the ground. Um, Tell me about um, how many candidates have you guys worked with so far? Over the last few years, we've been incredibly fortunate to work with over 600 climate champions running for office across America. And you're right, it's an election year. um, And this is something we're diving into deeply this year to make sure that we elect hundreds more climate champions to public office throughout the country. Do you work with incumbents as well as first-time candidates? We work with all types of candidates. Um, I have two folks in mind today that we're really focused on. So if an incumbent is doing great on climate, for example, passing 100% clean energy in the state of Michigan, which just happened, we will be supporting those folks and making sure that they can stay in their seats. Um, And we're also looking at flip opportunities, places where we have huge climate deniers in public office today, and we need to make sure um, that instead in in their place, we have folks who are going to solve the climate crisis for us. You have accomplished so much since uh, you first started this organization in 2018. I mean, it has been a relatively few short years, and you have had some incredible successes. How does climate legislation look for this coming year, 2024? Thank you. Uh, on 2024, you know, what we're really thinking about is obviously there's the big presidential election year. But in addition to that, this year in 2024, over 200,000 people will run for political office in America. 200,000 people. And so what at Climate Cabinet we're doing is we're sorting through those races. And our job is to bring the top races on climate 
to folks who deeply care about this issue. Uh, and so you can go to climatecabinet.org and the top races you can volunteer for, candidates you can volunteer for, candidates you can donate to, candidates you can spread the word and share on social media. That's what we're really thinking about for this year. And there's a lot at stake. What do, what do you use? Uh, what sort of points or outline? How do you judge a candidate? What are the things you look for? So when we focus primarily on voting records. So we'll look at essentially two things. We'll look at the climate impact of the office and how the person who's in that office has voted. You know, politicians say a lot of stuff on Twitter, for example, but we don't care about tweets. We care about votes. And so that's the primary thing we look at. The second thing we look at is how winnable is the race? And so we're really prioritizing candidates who are the most flippable districts in their state, in their city, in their county across the U.S. They're the difference makers on climate change and our ability to act on this crisis in their area. A lot of political organizations I talk to say they look at potentially flippable seats as like, say, an area where maybe the current office holder is a Republican, but the area as a whole, say, voted for Joe Biden in the last election. Mm. So you know that there is at least some interest in the Democratic principles there. How do you decide which seats are flippable? We look at, so there's a huge problem that I want to to increase the awareness of, which is down-ballot drop-off. So a lot of times folks will show up to the polls, they'll vote for that top of ticket for Joe Biden, for example, and then they either won't fill out the rest of the ballot or um, they'll split ticket down the ballot. So one thing we really look at when we're looking at analysis is not just how's the president doing, we're really looking at what does winnability mean for a city council race, for a state legislature race. And sometimes those numbers can look pretty different. So we take um, we have a great data science team, and they are looking at election results from state and local levels every time we think about winnability, because we want to make sure. Um, and, that, and that gives us a slightly different picture of what's, what's doable on the state and local level. It's interesting that you talk about ballot drop down, ballot drop off, because I think that I've seen that a lot in people. And sometimes mm-hmm. like like in Illinois, sometimes we'll uh, where we elect all these judges or we have to vote on retention. You know, you'll have five political offices and then you'll have six pages of judges. Um, you know, do we retain? Do we not retain? And unless you have downloaded a list from an organization you trust, I, I mean, you know, I'm a pretty reasonably informed voter. And there were times when I would be surprised by a ballot and I'd just be like, oh, my God, I didn't do my homework. And then usually I would say, since I don't know how to vote on these issues, I won't vote at all. I mean, a lot of people in Illinois couldn't name their state representative and their state senator. And sometimes those are are on the ballot. And you're like, oh, um, let's see. Um, Well, I haven't heard anything bad about my state senator. They haven't been indicted, which is kind of a bar we apply here in Illinois. Um, But but yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just, um, you know, you see all the advertising and all of the energy seems to go into the up ballot races. And sometimes I think people are just afraid of making a mistake or they just don't feel informed enough to vote on the down ballot things. How do you particularly fight that? I think I can deeply empathize with that feeling of looking at a ballot full of all of these names and being like, wait, how many people am I supposed to vote on? What's happening? And so 
At Climate Cabinet, what we do, um, the first piece is that these races are incredibly important. And so when I think about, for example, um, we're supporting a candidate, Jamie Churches in Michigan. Jamie voted for 100% clean electricity in Michigan. Michigan is now following Illinois' example and going 100% clean. And she is one of the most at-risk people in the Michigan state legislature this year. So when I'm thinking about, okay, what does it take to help um, Jamie Churches get over the finish line in 2024, it's really um, making sure that she has the volunteers, the donations, and the um, base level of support that she needs to knock on tens of thousands of doors in the state of Michigan and get her word out. So it's a, what, we, what we do at Climate Cabinet is we really think about let's take our climate champions and let's give them the resources they need to get over the finish line and make sure that they can get to every door in their community and make sure that people have heard about them so that they show up to the ballot and they're like, I know that campaign. They knocked on my door last week and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready and prepared to vote for them. When you've got a candidate like that who you think is doing really good work but is sort of on the bubble, what are the most, what is the single most or the top two most effective techniques for giving them a margin of safety when the election comes around? Absolutely. So the first thing I'm really thinking about is making sure that that candidate is, it's a really busy year. There's going to be a lot of noise in the airwaves. They need an early they need early catalytic support. So what I'm thinking about is what's their volunteer plan? How are they door knocking? So if folks listening to this are wondering how to get involved in 2024, finding your local candidate to volunteer for is going to be their volunteer base and their ability to knock on doors is really going to be determinative for their ability to win. So I'm thinking about that volunteer base that they're building and from, and then we'll also look at um, how is their campaign fundraising going and do they have the funds right now to hire the staff that they need um, to build that volunteer base and get them going throughout the rest of the year. And do you give your candidates um, talking points? Do, are there certain issues that you really want them to work on? Is, is it a kind of a, a, a partnership that way? Or do you just say, Absolutely. you know, you've done great work, um, you know, we just want you to continue? Absolutely. I mean, we've been so candidates often will reach out to us. For example, we have the winter storm hitting communities um, across the U.S. right now. So one thing that we're doing this week and that we've done in the past is make sure there's a lot of misinformation when that happens and making sure that our candidates are armed with um, information they need to support their community um, and making sure that what we've seen in the past is like the MAGA camp, that like kind of extreme right wing MAGA camp pushing fake news about solar and wind energy whenever um, we have we have winter shut off like this. And so we want to make sure that um, our candidates are armed with the talking points that they need. So uh, right now, in, what's happening in Texas right now is solar and wind energy are keeping the lights on in that state. And that's really important. So we'll absolutely support what talking points is needed throughout throughout the race as climate issues come up, because they really are starting to come up more and more on the campaign trail. I know you do um, um, focus a lot on um, uh, local races because those down ballot races can make a huge difference. But what about national races and national issues? What is of interest to you there? Nationally, what we're really looking at is, um, and at Climate Cabinet, we focus on state and local. 
nationally, the trends that I'm watching are around um, some of the congressional, the House seats. I think the House is going to be incredibly competitive this year. The Senate um, is is also competitive. We know we have some competitive seats in Illinois um, and throughout the Midwest at the congressional level. And I think um, what will be particularly interesting is we're seeing pretty extreme people be in the running for nominations for a lot of these offices, um, folks who are election deniers, folks who have not spoken out about the January 6th insurrection. And so um, I think one thing that I'm thinking about nationally and in states is how we make sure many, we want to elect pro-democracy, pro-climate people to office. And um, I'm, uh, we're going to get some interesting people running at the <laughs> national side. And I, you know, if, if you're not here for democracy, I'm not here for you. So I want to make sure that our pro-democracy candidates make it through this year. That's really what I'm watching nationally. That's kind of a tough answer, but it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, of significant importance. Like, are you going to weigh in? You know, there's a, a Senate seat up for grabs in California. And... Um, Adam Schiff and a couple of other people are running. Adam Schiff has gotten Nancy Pelosi's endorsement. Adam Schiff got the endorsement mm. of the L.A. Times. Um, would you have would that be the sort of race that you would weigh in on? Or since he's already a Democrat and he's already getting a lot of endorsements, would that not be something you would spend any time on? At Climate Cabinet, we really are money ball for climate politics. We find state and local races that have outsized impact. Um, and so what we really look at, uh, we really focus on state and local because that's where every uh, volunteer hour, every dollar, um, we believe goes farthest. That's at the core of our mission. Um, with the California Senate race, I think what I'm really excited, I need to hear more about from both of those candidates is specific plans on climate. So mm-hmm. far, they've really focused on a lot of other topics. Fortunately, there's a debate um, next Monday or Tuesday in Los Angeles where they're actually going to get on the record about climate issues. And really, that's what that's what I'm personally looking forward to hearing from them is do you worry that climate isn't the the does isn't given the priority with say older voters as it seems mm. to be with younger voters i mean you do surveys of younger voters and man you know the the cl- climate is right up there it's in, it's in the top 5 if not in the top 3 and that's not always the case as the as you get older voters I absolutely agree that climate is a huge issue for young voters. I think that's something that in the last two election cycles, we've actually seen climate drive turnout from younger voters. That's, this is why they're showing up to the polling place, and I think we'll see that continue. Um, I think we can do more work to um, explain how, how fighting climate change helps the, helps, um, the economy, helps jobs, et cetera. Like I'm thinking about Again, the Climate and Equity Jobs Act, Equitable Jobs Act that, that Illinois passed, and now Bloomington, Illinois, has electric vehicle manufacturing. They have solar installation. I actually have a friend who lives there who works as an electrician for a solar company. So I think as we see more and more of these jobs from the Inflation Reduction Act, um, we'll keep we'll keep building. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll keep building the political narrative that hey, this is a winning issue for folks if. Mm-hmm. Um, folks run on it. And I think we've seen that that over the last five years, that's changed dramatically. 
And, and I think it'll just continue as we keep building out the clean energy economy. You know, when we when this issue first became uh, something that we were paying attention to, we discovered that there were climate deniers and, oh, there's no climate change. You know, it's just um, this has happened. You know, there have been times when things got warmer and times when things got colder. And I think that those voices have died down a little bit, but I don't think that they've entirely gone away. How do you combat that sort of idea that there's really, you know, nothing to look at here? It's not important. I think what I think that's absolutely right. And what we've seen over the last few years is climate deniers are getting smarter. There's no they're no longer because people see the heat waves. People experience the hurricanes. People experience the flooding. It's it's no longer something that um, most people in America can deny. Um, what we have seen instead is um, climate denier politicians being a little trickier. And so they, instead of coming out right and being climate denial, they will secretly pass, um, you know, a billion dollars in extra funding for fossil fuels under the table. And we've seen that pass state legislatures um, in, across the country. And so there's less of an outright climate denial that we're seeing, and it's more moving into other types of misinformation and other types of negative policy that folks are passing. And then there's the argument that we're not ready. Um, you know, we have to keep funding um, all these other sources of uh, energy. We have to keep funding uh, fossil fuel plants because we're not ready. We don't have uh, the infrastructure yet. It's coming, um, but we don't have it. We don't have it yet. Um, I, I think we have been very slow to move on a, on a lot of this. And, and also, too, I think some politicians are worried about the loss of jobs. You know, oh, you know, there's a big coal plant in my district and it employs, you know, X amount of people. And, you know, God, I don't want to be the congressperson to put them out of work. Um, how, do you, how do you combat that? And why aren't things happening faster? We have all of the technology we need to solve climate change. Iowa today gets 60% of its electricity from wind energy, and every other state is far behind. So we have a lot, even there's so much we can do right now, and we have the technology at the price point we need to solve this issue. So that's the great news, is that we can do it. Uh, The bad news is that political, we don't have the political will. Uh, We are being stopped by political intransigence, and again, it's like more... Um, subtle form of climate denial where folks say, oh, I believe in climate change, but I, you know, they don't pass legislation to actually fix it. So I think that's where we are now. Um, that's really where we are. And, you know, when I think of why that's the case, um, we have, uh, you can follow the money on political donations. I think that's a big reason. Um, and I think folks are slow to realize the true boom in clean energy jobs that is already happening across the country. Um, And those industries need to build up their political power. um, And folks working in solar, working in wind, et cetera, need to build up their political power to start advocating more for more of these jobs. With the exception of Joe Manchin, I tend to think Mm -hmm. of uh, Democrats as being 
big supporters of uh, clean energy and Republicans, big supporters of fossil fuels. But it occurs to me that perhaps it's not quite so black and white. What is what's your feeling about all that? So we're seeing two two trends happening. The first is that with the rise of MAGA, this MAGA extremism on the right, the the it's it has always been that Democrats have been voted better for climate issues, um, and that's largely been true over that's absolutely been true over the last decade. But we are seeing we did used to have more Republicans who would vote with us, and you know as Donald Trump really has become the standard bearer for the party. Those Republicans are retiring um, and getting replaced by folks who are more extreme. And so that's the first trend that we're seeing. Um, the second trend that we're seeing is we still do have a lot of Democrats who are um, who uh, can get better on climate. And so um, I think that's at, we're looking at both of those trends nationally, um, largely um, uh, every yeah, largely Democrats have been much better on climate, but there's still weak spots in both parties that we can work on. How is um? Give me a, a rundown of uh, what you see here in the state of Illinois. Uh, any particular candidates we should keep our collective eyes on? You know, we'll be rolling out um, Illinois endorsements on our website over the next few weeks. I think one thing that I'm really looking at right now is. Um, getting pollution out of buildings in Chicago and Illinois and the work that the Chicago Building Decarbonization Coalition has been doing, again, to make sure that we're not having nitrous oxide emissions, some of the indoor air pollution that we get with um, with burning gas in buildings. Um, and I think, yeah, the Illinois Sierra Club is pushing legislation at the Capitol. Um, and those, and we, there's still, Illinois passed a great, Bill, think about climate change. This is really hard to solve. We're going to keep needing to pass legislation um, repeatedly to um, keep pushing, moving the ball forward on climate. And so there are, uh, from a Illinois government perspective, there are big ways to improve at the, at the state legislature level. And Illinois Sierra Club is taking point on that. So, for example, I think of Prairie State, um, a big coal plant. Uh, the a big coal plant in Illinois and um, we need a retirement date on that um, to solve climate change. And we need to build a whole lot of clean energy jobs in the state. So there's a lot of progress still to be made. You were named uh, one of Forbes 30 under 30. What an honor. And just this year, um, what I didn't have a chance to read the article. What did Forbes say about you? Why did they choose you? Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Um, yeah, I think um, what's exciting about where we are in, like, um, where we are in, we're at a time of a lot of change in U.S. politics. And I think, again, like you said, young people really care about this issue. There's a generational, um, there's a generational change in America's willingness to be a climate leader and willingness to act on climate. I think that's really representative by my generation especially. And um, yeah, I, it was very nice. And I also think it's, it's representative of larger millennial Gen Z attitudes towards climate. This is something that my generation deeply, deeply cares about. And we're willing to uh, get out there and solve it. 
What kind of feedback have you gotten since you uh, got that honor? Um, it's been actually, it's just been nice. Like a lot of folks who are friends of mine, it's kind of an excuse to reconnect with people. <laughs> so, um, honestly, that's kind of what I loved about it. So I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't talked to them in a while. And folks have kind of reached out. It's mostly been a very like friendly, um, experience. And I also think it's shown a spotlight on, um, 2024, um, and the candidates that we're supporting, um, and making sure that we can get those candidates across the finish line. And I'm like, I think that's the biggest thing that I'm excited about is, wow, how can we use this to, again, like get thousands of climate champions elected across America that will build the political will that we need to solve this. Do you have um, like um, one centralized organization or do you have people who uh, are located in all the different states? Oh, we're a national organization. So we have 15 folks in eight states across the U.S., and that will always be true. It's so we, we need to, this is a national goal, and this is a national movement, and so we need to have folks in all of these really critical geographies over the next decade. Um, and that's representative in the polling. Americans in every county across the U.S. Um, care about this issue, to very, sometimes to different degrees, but we know we have climate champions in, in every county in America. When did you say uh, the recommendations were going to be out for the state of Illinois? I would check. Um, I would expect those before the summer. So I would check those at, um, again, climatecabinet.org, and we'll be rolling out recommendations over the next six to eight months, all of it till Election Day, and we'll have folks in um, – that we're recommending in, in almost every state across the country. If you're looking to volunteer now, I definitely um, reach out to folks running locally, wherever you live, and say, hey, I really care about climate. Let's figure out how to help you get elected. I think that's the most critical thing is electeds need to hear this from their constituents way more often. Um, and so even if it's someone where you're like, well, it's not a competitive district, if you're showing up and you're volunteering for that to help them reach out to their um their constituents in this critical election year and you're showing up for climate. And that's something that any elected official will remember. And you're helping push um, these folks to solve this crisis as fast as possible. Is your organization a nonprofit? Do you work off of grants? Um, If people want to support you financially, can they do that? Absolutely. Um, We are a nonprofit um, and proudly so. Um, Yeah. On our And so there's options to support us on our website. There's options to support our candidates on the website. Um, yeah, you can find candidates to volunteer for. Um, whatever, uh, all hands on deck for 2024 and whatever capacity <laughs> people are ready for. Let's do it and let's do it together. Sounds like a plan. Uh, Carolyn Spears, founder of Climate Cabinet, uh, one of Forbes 30 under 30 for 2024. Uh, thanks so much, uh, the climatecabinet.org, if you want to find out more information, how you can volunteer, how you can help. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Really, really enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Joan. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. When we come back from the news, we are going to be talking to a former Watergate prosecutor, 
author of the book, The Watergate Girl. Jill Weinbanks is going to be here. I have a feeling that this former prosecutor is going to have a few choice words for the way Donald Trump has been misbehaving in court today. If you haven't heard about that or read about that yet, he doesn't have to be there, but he's sitting in the gallery uh, for the E. Jean Carroll case. She's gone back to court since he continues to defame her to um, get a new judgment, a new a monetary judgment against him. And um, he's been sitting in the gallery muttering away to the point where he was admonished by the judge um, and told to be quiet or he was going to be excused. We'll be back with more after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of our favorite people in the whole world is former Watergate prosecutor, author of The Watergate Girl, Jill Weinbanks. It has been too long, my friend. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, and thank you for having me on. Always, always a pleasure. Well, let's just get right to it. Um, I was, you know, this was not something that I thought I was going to lead off the discussion with today, but I had no idea that Donald Trump was going to sit in the gallery for E. Jean Carroll's testimony today and apparently mutter a running commentary about what he thinks about the proceedings, what he thinks about the people involved, what he thinks about the lawyers involved. I mean, Jill, what the heck? Well, what's more important is what the judge thinks and what he's doing to control both Donald Trump and Alina Haba, Donald Trump's lawyer, who actually said to the judge, and this is actually the most shocking thing to me of the day, and that is that she said, I don't like being talked to that way when the judge admonished her and said, sit down, you've made your argument and I've ruled. No one talks to a judge that way. No one. Not anybody who wants to keep practicing law. That was so unbelievable to me. Um, But, yes, Donald Trump is, of course, using this for political purposes to make it seem like he's the victim instead of the actual victim of his behavior, both the assault and the lies. And um, he thinks it's valuable or more valuable to him than his campaign, which I will point out, he abandoned the proceedings yesterday afternoon, flew to New Hampshire, and then came back to glower at E. Jean Carroll, who is a brave and wonderful woman who deserves all of our respect. What did the judge say when uh, Lena Haba said, I don't like being talked to that way? I mean, well, that's jaw-dropping. Down. It is jaw-dropping. Have you ever, ever heard of anything like that? I mean, I've been insulted by judges. I was, uh, I mean, sexist comments, but you don't say anything back because it's the judge, and he controls how your client gets treated. So control yourself. It's ridiculous. Totally absurd. Um, and all, I mean, she was making an argument that she had already made, that had been rejected by the judge. He had already ruled, and she was, like, going on and on about it. And she also lied to him, saying, you know, about this delay because he wants to attend (laughs) his mother-in-law's funeral. Well, he certainly can because, number one, he does not need to be in the courtroom. 
that is not required, different in a criminal trial, but this is not a criminal trial, so he does not have to be there. And so there's, he, he, he's certainly free to go, and because he has a private plane, he can fly up early in the morning, and he can still be back for the afternoon, or he can take a day off. He, he took an afternoon off for a campaign event. Take an afternoon off for your mother-in-law's funeral. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that she is emboldened because of her client and also, or maybe she was showing off for her client, I don't know, but I think that in all of his legal proceedings, the judges involved have bent over backwards to make sure he is being given every opportunity, treated with every bit of respect. I mean, Jill, I was talking about this with um, uh, another lawyer earlier today. And if I were sitting in that courtroom um, talking about, oh, oh, this is really weird, this just doesn't make any sense, what do you think the judge would say to me? What would the judge do to me? Well, remember, she also said... I don't know how to handle this case. I don't know how to defend this case because of his rulings. Again, that's just not appropriate at all. So I, I, it's, it's impossible. And if you were not Donald Trump's lawyer, one, you wouldn't be doing this. And I think to your point, it's showing off for her client and probably responding to his demands that she behave this way. And, but if she did it, and she wasn't representing him, she would be sanctioned for her behavior. And, you know, this is, there's a jury hearing this case. When she basically makes those smart aleck comments, I can't believe that she's endearing herself to the jury on this case. I mean, as a lawyer... You know, don't you you try to get the jury on your side? You do, and of course, you never know um, if there's a trumper on the jury, how they will respond. They probably think it's correct and proper, and they love it. Um, so you never know, but at some point, there will be sanctions involved because this can't go on this way. And And your point in the beginning was, He's getting better treatment than anyone else, and yes, he is, no question about it. Definitely being treated differently to his advantage than any other defendant would be, as he has been all along. Um, In every one of these cases, he's getting advantages that other people don't get. I don't think his advantage this time is his lawyer, because she's making a lot of mistakes. Now, I've heard people say that the judge in this case and Judge Engeron in New York are allowing him more latitude and more opportunity for outrageous behavior so that the he has less ammunition to appeal whatever verdicts or rulings they make. Do you think that is a judicial strategy we're seeing here in a couple of these cases? I think it may be, and I think it's appropriate, because you, the only thing that would be worse that I can think of is getting a verdict and having it overturned because he was denied right. And so I think judges need to be very careful about what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And um, But I will also point out that 
Judge Engeron had more leeway because it was a non-jury trial. Mm-hmm. And he can take it out of his mind and say, well, that was irrelevant, and he muttered, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. or he stood up and, you know, tried to make a closing argument that was completely inappropriate. It doesn't affect a jury, which you can tell the jury, please ignore that. But, you know, once you've heard it, it's very hard to forget that you heard it. Mm-hmm. And so you never know what impact some improper inadmissible comment will have on a final verdict. Whereas with a judge, you can feel pretty clear that judges can say, I heard 10 things. These five are evidence and these five are not. And I will decide only on the five that are admissible. So at some point sooner than would have happened in the Engeron-led case, uh, Judge Kaplan is going to have to make sure that E. Jean Carroll is getting a fair trial and that the jury isn't unduly influenced by phony, uh, inadmissible, uh, and oftentimes not even factually founded statements by the defense team, including the defendant. Alina Haba, she's the one, one of Trump's former lawyers. I don't know how you say his last name, Parlatori, Tim Parlator yes. or Parlatori. Yes. Um, he said once there was a case she took over, I guess this was after he left and another lawyer passed away, and he said that he didn't think anybody was really at the wheel. Right. I'm sorry. Right. I, you know, right. but it's that's, true. And he, those and he are two former team now. members. Right. Well, he's withdrawn now because he's had enough of it. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly why he withdrew now uh, from another civil case, but obviously he didn't want to continue representing the president. Um, one of my Watergate colleagues turned down representing the president for a variety of reasons, um, including, you know, would his firm get paid? I'm sure it's mm-hmm. got to be playing into it. Um, and, and also, does he have the time to give up all his other clients to do it? Um, so, and this was in the Florida uh, Mar-a-Lago documents case. So it's he's he's a difficult client, and I think you know I learned a very good lesson um, way long ago. I guess during Watergate, learning that even the president has to be told no, and that the most important thing you can do is to be honest with your client and say no. And if you don't like that, I'm leaving. Um, there's no other way with a difficult client. You you cannot misrepresent the facts, and you can't make arguments that have no legal or factual foundation. That's not bothering some of his lawyers. Did you ever have a client who wouldn't take your advice? Because that's what all of his lawyers say, you know, because the judges will be like, control your client, and they're like, I can't control him. Um, well, did you ever have a client like that? Not in the practice of law. Um, I spent some years as a consultant, and I I found it very unsatisfying because you go in, you assess the problem, you determine a proper solution, but you don't implement it yourself. And oftentimes the client doesn't either do a good job of implementing it or says, "Uh, I I don't like this advice, I'm not going to do it, Um, even though you know you're right. So. That's that's a very different situation. I cannot think of any time where a client um, or a witness, when, cause when you say 
the United States is your client, they're only represented by witnesses that you're calling. And I can't think of anyone that was not willing to tell the truth and to cooperate in terms of developing their memory so that they had the most accurate memory of every detail that surrounded the transaction you were talking about. I remember, um, well, this was a long time ago. This was pre or around the time of Mar-a-Lago, whatever, um, reading an article in the Tribune that a couple of extremely prominent um, noted Republican-type lawyers in Chicago had been approached by, if not Trump himself, the Trump team about, you know, going to work for him. And uh, both of the lawyers said, oh, you know, gosh, really would have liked to have done this. I'm just too busy right now. And apparently they both said the same thing. Um, Gosh, yeah, gee, of course, would never pass on this, except I just can't do it right now. And I thought to myself, who do you think you're kidding? I mean, do you think Donald Trump believes that? I mean, you just don't want to you don't you either don't want to get paid or you don't want a client who isn't going to listen to you. And, you know, right. the few the few decent lawyers he's had in recent years, it's also been very public knowledge that they demanded payment up front. Yes. Yes, indeed, because he does have a well-known history of not paying lawyers or others that he owes money to. The same is true in the construction of the Trump Tower. There were a lot of unpaid bills that were due and owing. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's enough warning that if you take him on, you better get paid up front or you may never get paid. We have a caller who uh, wants to ask you a question, Jill. Jim is on the line from Chicago. Jim, go ahead. You're on with me and Jill Weinbanks. Hi. Hi, how are you? If I had anything to do with the Trump campaign for president, I would discourage him from coming to court and remind the country that he's he's guilty of a sexual assault when he's trying to woo women voters. I think he's just throwing it in the face of the country that he... he uh, this serious crime that anybody would be mortified, more than mortified, with, and he, and he doesn't have to be there. And I don't understand his campaign strategy. If I had a camp, if I had a person running for president, I'd discourage him from going to court. I don't know what well, you, you people. You, you go ahead. I'm Jim, sorry. I agree with you completely. I definitely agree with you. I, that would be my advice to him, too, is that he should never, ever testify. He cannot control himself, and he always says something that is actually incriminating when he's testifying. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a bad idea for him to testify. But from his political viewpoint, he believes he's scoring points with the people who actually believe that the election was stolen and that he's a victim. And he's he's now posting on his truth social things like, you know, the judge is a, a, a Democrat appointee who hates me and is going after me, so I have to be in the courtroom to protect my interests. Now, that didn't stop him from leaving the court to go to New Hampshire last night and being back today to glare at E. Jean Carroll who was testifying. And so it, it doesn't make sense to me, but that's because none of the things that he does or none of the things that his cult accepts as true make any sense to me. So 
um, you know, if you're a lawyer for a client, you say, I advise you not to testify. I advise you not to be here. Um, your scowl is not helping your case. It's not endearing you to the jury. And he says, I don't care. I disagree with you. I'm going to be there. Well, it is his his case. He can stay. You, there's no way you can bar him. So if he doesn't follow your advice, then you're you have no choice. You have to, he'll be there, period. But I agree with you that it's not helping. Jill, do you think that part of the reason he's doing this is not only because his followers um, continue to see him as a victim, but I heard one pundit suggest that by appearing in court and grabbing, you know, the, um, the news headlines, he's sucking the air from Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Unfortunately, yes. And I, I'm sorry, Joan, but I blame the media in general for giving him way too much coverage, way too much coverage. He is not worthy of it. His speeches are filled with lies. They should not be broadcast live because it only broadcasts his version of events that don't square with the facts. So I, I think it's a sad state of affairs that he goes out into the court hallway or out in front of the courthouse doors, and he gets a press conference, and it gets covered, Mm -hmm. and it gets broadcast. That is not what a trial should be. And I also think that his posting on Truth Social is something that could definitely influence the jury, and he should not be allowed to do that at all. So it's distressing to me that... The press is covering it, that the social media is, that the judge is allowing him to attack the judge and the facts and the, and to keep on defaming the victim, E. Jean Carroll. So she should not be able, he should not be able to do that to her or the judge and should not be able to influence with out of court statements anything that might influence the jury. I know that, um, Lawyers are generally loath to make predictions, um, but based on your experience, if you were in this courtroom, E. Jean Carroll, we, we, this isn't, you're right, we're not deciding defamation. That's been decided. We're right. not deciding whether or not he's somebody who's guilty of sexual assault. That has been decided. What they are looking at now is she got a judgment. Should the amount of that judgment be changed? Should significant punitive damages be added to that? Because, oh, by the way, he keeps doing what got him into trouble in the first place. Um, Exactly. In a situation like that, I mean, they're basically, you know, deciding on money. What does Donald Trump's presence in the courtroom make make it more likely that they'll be sympathetic or make it more likely that they'll want to really stick it to him? Again, it's it's almost impossible to predict which is the, you know, reaction that a jury will have to his presence there. Will it intimidate them? Will it make him make them feel sorry for him? Um, will his behavior um, make them dislike him even more? And I, I can tell you from the Watergate trial, there was one defendant who was considered to be a really mean, nasty, unlikable, and unliked person. And we debated who should cross-examine him. 
because the theory was if I could get him to yell at me and show his true hot-headedness, the jury would hate him. But if he yelled at either of my two male colleagues, it would be no event at all. And then the only question was, was would he control himself and not yell at a woman? And we decided, well, if he doesn't, we don't lose anything. So I cross-examined him, and he did yell at me, and the jury hated him. So it's possible that a jury will take a personal dislike to someone who acts badly and is rude and insulting. It's also possible that there's someone on the jury who thinks, yay, go for it, fella. Um, I mean, he does have a lot of cult followers who think that. So it's hard to say, and predicting, as you said, is something that lawyers don't like doing because there is no sure thing. Although, in this case, because the lie has been established, that he did lie, that he knew it was a lie, and that it hurt her. And you're right, $5 million didn't stop him because immediately after the verdict, he started saying the same things over and over again. He defamed her at least 41 times on the first day of the trial. So he hasn't learned his lesson. And I don't know how much of a multiple of $5 million you need to stop his behavior, but I would say it's probably 100 times. I mean, he's not learning. You can't just keep making her sue him for repeatedly doing it, he needs to be punished to, you know, the, the, for her harm, for her damages, for her actual compensation, but also because she's entitled to punitive damages to prevent him from doing this to her again and again and again. And if he's doing it during the trial, he hasn't learned his lesson. So he will keep on doing it. And that means it's going to have to be really big judgment. Jill, I have a question about that, though, because a lot of times when I've seen situations where juries imposed really big judgments, sometimes the court cuts it down. Um, Why does that happen? And is there any chance it would happen in this case? Well, of course, there's always a chance. And yes, judges will reduce compensatory damages, particularly, if they feel that the injuries that were testified to and proved in court do not amount to that amount of money. But in terms of it being punitive damages, it's really up to a jury to decide how much harm was done that needs to be stopped in the future and to impose the punitive damages. That's a punishment. That's not compensation. And while I'm I'm not saying it's not within a judge's power to do it, I think a judge would be very unlikely to mess with punitive damages. So I don't think that's going to be a problem here. Um, The amount of damages in the New York Fry trial were raised from the initial request based on the evidence presented in the courtroom the prosecution, the attorney general, asked for larger damages. Now, we haven't had a ruling. That also is a trial where only the amount of damages was at issue, not liability. And so we're still waiting for a verdict. Um, uh, I've been off the grid all day, so unless it came down today, I, and I think I would have heard by, from someone calling me if, if it had, um, you know, we're waiting for the amount of damages in a non-jury trial, just from the judge. Um, and so, you know, we'll have to wait and see. 
um, what what those damages will be. And here, I mean, I just think a jury, I mean, wouldn't you feel sorry if someone stood up and testified, I had a great career and then he did this and I started getting death threats and I started having a horrible life. Wouldn't you want to stop that person and protect them? Look what happened in Georgia with the two Georgia election workers. They got $458 million for their suffering. And um, so you know, predict that that could be the amount that he has to pay someone who was earning a very good living and, you know, stopped earning it. Uh, Now, there are some defense arguments being made um, that she publicized it by filing the complaint and therefore she brought it on herself. Well, I'm sorry, but that is not a defense to the fact that you Mm -hmm. did something that hurt someone and they sued you for it and therefore it became public or more public. Uh, because if it wasn't public to begin with, there wouldn't be a defamation case. It has to be public. So um, I, I think she has a very strong case, and she's been very strong to bring this and put up with death threats and uh, <clears throat> other stuff. I mean, I'm sure all of us have gotten tweets that demean something we said um, by people who are of a very different political viewpoint and who ignore the facts. But, you know, getting a death threat is really, really devastating and makes yeah. you rethink your life and where you're living. And uh, and that's what happened to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Is, and they had to give up their homes and move and, you know, be protected. Uh, these are things that will lead to large damages. Yeah. And Jill, we should thank know you. by... You know, a week from now, I think we'll know the answer. God, I hope so. Thank you so much, Jill, for being with us today. I love talking to you. It's been too long. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. David Kidwell is here. He is with Injustice Watch. And uh, when we spoke to David before, he was talking about how they were going to be a great organization for us to decide which of judges to vote for. And uh, he's here today to talk about that and other things. Welcome, David. How are you? Are you having a good 2024? I am so far. It's good to be here, Joan. Always <laughs> nice to talk to you. Yeah, well, you know, the nice thing about 2024 is it's so new that it really hasn't had time to go off the rails yet. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying the weather. <laughs> Are you really now? Oh, that's, you know, I'm one of those people who has the frozen Tesla. Luckily, Ray has an uh, has a really old cranky uh, gas-powered uh, Jeep. It's like, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years old. But, you know, God love that Jeep is saving our lives because, man, oh, man, uh, electric cars and extreme cold are not a match made in heaven. Yeah, well, I drive a motorcycle, so count your blessings. Oh my God, David! <laughs> How does that even work in the winter time? It, it doesn't really. <laughs> it's in the garage. <laughs> David Kidwell walking everywhere until spring. Uh, so tell me about the Injustice Watch Judicial Guide. Yeah, so you know, if you're a voter and and. Cook County, you know that you when you go to the polls every time, 
um, you, at the end of the ballot, there's this long, long list of people you've never heard of, and it's impossible to know how to vote because they're all judges. Can all, all of our judges are elected? Um, and I know that when I came here and I I went through that, I I get to the bottom of that. I go, what am you know what, what am I supposed to do now? So as a as a way to sort of help people out with that, um, and Justice Watch um, many years ago began doing these. Judicial um, judicial guides, voting guides, um, every every election cycle, and so this year we have, I think, close to seventy candidates for uh, about forty vacancies on the bench, all the way from the Supreme Court down to sub circuits um, and circuit court. Um, and what we do is, and I didn't realize this. I mean, I've used this guide in the past, but I didn't realize this until I came to work in a Justice Watch. The amount of effort that is put into investigating every candidate, making you know, making sure that um, uh, their you know their background is known and that they're qualified to do what that they're living where they're supposed to live, that they don't have a felony in their background, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that they're not lying on the resume, and we, we and we do that every election cycle on judges and we publish uh, we will be publishing in mid-February before early voting um, that guide which is going to have like a mini profile of every candidate all 70 candidates um, uh, and you know we found some interesting stuff on a lot of them um, and um, and then we'll publish uh, an, a, a written version and online uh, in time for people to take them into the polls if they want. Now, do you actually, let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, you get the resume for a judicial candidate. I mean, do you, is, does somebody from Injustice Watch, like, call the school and says, you know, you know, John Smith says he graduated uh, in the class of, you know, 1972, you know, is, is, can you verify that? Do you, I mean, that kind of work? Yes, that, that kind of work. We we what we what we do is we send out a um, questionnaire to each of the candidates, asking them to fill it out, and in, in it's a very robust questionnaire, um, asking about their family, their pre previous um, experience, their um, you know every all to add their resume and everything, and then what we do we, we have a staff of seven reporters and we split all of those 70 like each each of the of the reporters get 10 candidates and they start digging in to make sure that there's everything's right and everybody's qualified that um you know a lot of people use different criteria when they're voting for a judge and it's an incredibly important um uh part of the election because mm-hmm. these these judges affect every aspect of our lives. And so it's really important. And there has been recently been some political changes in Cook Cook County and and, and the state that have changed dramatically the way judges are chosen uh, or the way candidates are chosen. Um, And so uh, it's more important now than ever uh, to know what you're doing when you go in there. Um, uh, But, a lot of these these uh, judgeships are are, cha- are challenged. Whether they, some of them aren't, a lot of them are, um, and so um, yeah, we we have found some very interesting stuff. We found a judicial candidate, for instance, with a felony background. We found people who are moving into this into the district so they can run to be a judge. You know, months, weeks, and months before, 
Um, and so there are a lot of interesting things um, and, and there's things that people should know about the background, about, you know, whether they were, whether they have a background as a prosecutor, or as a defense lawyer, um, you know, what businesses they are, whether they're a slumlord or not. Things like that uh, um, are, are, are all going to be included in this guide. Um, do you Google these people? Because I've got to tell you, David, years ago, I Googled myself and I was horrified of things that came up that were not true. I've never done it since I was traumatized. And that had to be 15, 20 years ago or whenever Google first started having those kinds of searches available. John, are you running for judge? I am not. And boy, if you Google me, you wouldn't have me run for anything, buddy. <laughs> I, you know what? Um, uh, there's some nasty stuff about me on Google, too. But you know what? I, I, I take it as a point of pride because usually it's coming from some, some corrupt politician. Anyway, so, um, uh, we, uh, I, uh, you know, Google is a tool. Uh, obviously, we do not rely on Google at all. Uh, we have all kinds of database services, and we actually get out of our chairs and go down to the courthouse and look up their, you know, the recorder of deeds and, and uh, all we do all of the work um, uh, that, that we can to dig up every public record that's available on each of these candidates. Why just judges? Why not do it for every single person who's on the ballot in any race? Well, Justice Watch's central mission is to cover the courts, and um, and so. Uh, and you, you're all about mo- justice. What if we have a George Santos? <laughs> Who's going to catch right. it? Well, right. Well, fortunately, um, fortunately, uh, we still have a rather robust uh, journalistic um, jur- journalism partners who are covering the bigger races, who are covering the. You know the contested political races. Um, what they don't do a good job of traditionally is because there, frankly, are so many judges. Oh my God! And, I, I was um, just talking to somebody earlier today, and I said, you know, it's like we get our ballot, and there's like three races and one issue, and then seventeen pages of judges. Right, and and it's it is incredibly daunting, and and it's impossible to know. So what we're all we do is we create, you know, pretty much. Everybody knows or should know when they're going to the voting booth, all of the political candidates. They've all been out stumping. They've all been, you know, uh, they've all got campaign literature and advertising. Typically, judges don't do a lot of that. Um, typically, judges are, are, are slated by the party or, or uh, picked in uh, some sort of political fashion. Um, and this year, that's, it, it, the system is the same, but the underlying criteria are, are changing dramatically. So we're going to be covering that as well. And then we're also going to be doing some profiles on some of the candidates who have um, more controversy in their past. Um, and so all of that's going to be available in one place, and you can take it physically into the, into the booth um, and make your choice a, a little bit more informed than you would have been previously. Now, this guide, is it simply here are the facts, make up your own mind, or will as part of that guide will be, you know, this judge is up for retention and Justice Watch says, yes, ret- retain no, this we- judge. No, no, we do not make endorsements. We do not. We do not tell, try to tell people how to vote. We do, however, include 
we will be including all of the endorsements that each of those candidates has gotten. Like, for instance, if the police union or right or the teachers or whatever, whoever it is out there, the unions um, uh, endorse a particular judge, that list of endorsements will be there so people can use use those to decide. But we are strictly journalism. We, we are not trying to tell people who to vote for. We, we are going to tell them if they're voting for a convicted felon or if they're mm-hmm. right. So, so we will we, we we do go into the backgrounds of each of these people, and we will be providing those facts. But it is just fact based. You said you're going to mention like some of the endorsements. Uh, as I've discovered, when in the past I've put something similar together for my son and daughter, I mean, there's like. Um, it feels like there's a million different legal organizations. You know, there's the Hispanic sure. lawyers, there's the gay lawyers, there's the, um, you know, blonde-haired lawyers. I mean, you know, these, there's a lot of these groups that, um, that, that cater to a certain type, and each and every one of those groups will say, you know, we recommend this lawyer, we don't recommend this lawyer. Like maybe, you know, the main Chicago Bar Association loves a particular lawyer, but the LGBTQ Association says no, they're a no, which means some of their members have had bad experiences with that particular judge. Do you include or link to all the different legal organizations and what they say about particular judges? Well, when uh, when any organization offers an endorsement for a specific candidate, what we'll do is we'll look at how they how they reach those conclusions. In other words, the bar association sends out their own questionnaire, and they have their own they have a you know long established criteria to make those choices. Um, some of these other you know startup groups and things like that, we might not even include them if their criteria for choosing those judges isn't up to our standards. Does, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're probably going to be sticking to the, to the, to the tried and true uh, endorsements that typically and historically have made um, uh, endorsements uh, of all, uh, in, in each race, for instance. Right. I mean, so it's possible that, that, some organization could pop up who doesn't like a specific individual and they will go after that person. We're probably not going to include that, but there are organizations out there who, who make an effort to give you a choice in each of the races. And those people have a criteria and those organizations have a criteria that they use and their own way of vetting those candidates. Some, some even conduct interviews. And so, um, and those people, we just consider those to be more tried and true and legitimate. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'm talking with David Kidwell from Injustice Watch. Uh, he and I are going to take a break. We're going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with David Kidwell from Injustice Watch. And, uh, David, I just was um, looking to uh, see how I could find out about this guide on your website. And there is a form uh, that says subscribe to our email list. If I do that, will I get an email notifying me when the when the uh, judge guide is available? Absolutely. And you'll you'll get our newsletter that we put out once. 
once a week. And so, what sorts of things uh, will I learn in your newsletter, Mr. Kidwell? Every, everything that we've done in the last, you know, and, and all the updates that are, that are uh, every story that we do, every update, every, um, uh, everything that we're planning on doing. So you, you will be on our mailing list, and you'll also get an update every time we publish a new story. And uh, I was looking at the the homepage for your website, and that's a there's a lot of reporting here. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We right, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we are the largest investigative newsroom in the in in Chicago right now. We have the most. We completely do investigations, um, and we don't do anything else. And um, uh, and, and but we are focused on the courts and the criminal justice system. And the newsletter uh, doesn't cost anything to get. But if you want to contribute to a warm coat for David Kidwell, because he is <laughs> going to be largely on foot for the rest of the winter, you can you even ride a motorcycle in the winter? Oh, yeah, I have a snow. I have a snowmobile suit that I wear. But yeah, oh, you, I, you I, have I like a snowsuit. Oh, I do. I, do. I don't. I don't drive when it's below zero. Um, but you know, if, once it gets up to, into the twenties and thirties, I, I use it all the time. Don't you have to worry about ice? I mean, isn't that a real danger for bikers? I I don't I don't drive on on wet or or um, you know yeah. I, if the pavement's not dry, I don't drive. I see. I see. And and. <laughs> I just, I don't know, when you first mentioned you had a motorcycle, I figured, you know, their hair blowing in the wind and this black leather jacket, you know, these big, uh, these big boots, you know, with, you know, you know, half would go halfway up your leg. And now you're telling me you ride around in a snowsuit. I don't know. I just, it's destroying the whole image. Yeah, comfort's better than comforts. Comfort over style—that's what I say. <laughs> you, you, Injustice Watch does a lot of reporting. Does a lot of keeping an eye on you know issues of fraud and 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 government um, waste and government expenditures. Um, what kind of feedback do you get? I mean, when you do a report, like, oh, let's just pick one. Illinois judge closes juvenile detention center after a facility in crisis fails to meet new state standards. You've got that story. You did that story. I assume it was part of a newsletter. It's on your website. Do you um, communicate with state legislators about this stuff? Yeah, we um, if we don't communicate with state legislators, we, we maintain a uh, a, a very, very. Uh, we're always looking for what impact our stories have had. Um, for instance, we just they, the the, fed, the federal prosecutors just um, charged uh, somebody somebody we wrote about in August with fraud against the elderly. Is that the um, city so we, city vice president? Yep, Helen so Caldwell. We keep, yeah, yeah, yeah. We keep track uh, very closely of. Uh, any anything that's happening on any of our investigations um, uh, going forward, and, um, and and a lot of times that involves um, new legislation, um, and and so that's happening. I mean, there's been there there's been some new legislation, for instance, on issues regarding reentry of, of uh, prisoners 
coming back into society and how how um, it, it, there's been an effort to be a little bit more humane mm-hmm. um, uh, against someone who was sentenced to life in prison when they were 18 and now they're in their 60s and 70s and they've been a model prisoner and so mm-hmm. there's been a lot of legislation around that kind of stuff about medical release of the elderly from prison or, or, um, and so um, we're, we're keeping track of, of a lot of that um, so yes we, we do we do talk to state lawmakers often about proposals that they are instituting in many cases, because of our stories. Do you know that, like, certain lawmakers have an interest in certain um, topics? Or are there certain lawmakers that you know that whatever you do, because they're very progressive or reform-minded, they're going to want to know about Injustice Watch and your reporting? I think most of the time, most of the time what we do is we go back to our sources um, and say for the original story, and say, "Hey, do you know of anything that's happening about that?" And they mm-hmm. will then tell us, "Hey, a, a lawmaker called us, or a lawmaker's office called us." And that's how we typically get. I mean, it's not like we have we pick up the phone and we've got a lawmaker on speed dial. We we, we hear from the people who contributed to the story to begin with, uh, advocates or people on either side. Who tell us? Oh, yeah, you know, the governor's office called us, or, or you know, state senator so and so called us, and they were thinking about dra- drafting some legislation. And so that's typically how we get a hold of lawmakers on these things. Mm-hmm. Not always, but that's typically how we do it. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to touch on uh, your year in review, where you talked about Injustice Watch's best work of 2023. What's what are one or two things you were particularly pleased with, either the work your organization did or the results that came from it? Right. Well, I, 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 it was it was um, we did a big project in August um, called um, uh, Exploited Elders, which uh, it, which out which revealed something that was shocking to me, and that is how little um, the state and local law enforcement do to protect people who are old and frail from fraudsters. Even, and, and we came across a number uh, of, of, of cases where the government, even the state's Office of Adult Protective Services, was aware of things going on and did nothing to stop it. And people lost their life savings. Oh. Um, and so... And so we ha- we did that story, and uh, and and we're getting indications that there may be some legislation coming on that. And they did just make an arrest of of one of the perpetrators who happened to be a vice president uh, at Citibank when she was, uh, um, you know, essentially, um, according to this information, uh, taking clients of Citibank who are who were the older clients, more vulnerable clients, and convincing them to um, to invest in her private uh, slasher movie company. <laughs> so, um, and 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 one point five million dollars, according to the feds, um, mm-hmm. which she stole from three different, you know, their life savings is destroyed, and and they're, you know, they're in nursing homes now, oh. um, and so 
that 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 was one thing I was particularly proud of. We've done, like I said, we did a lot of uh, stuff on on reentry um, series that we did years ago. Are now, you know, we just wrote a, a profile of a guy who got out. He was 18 um, and in a gang and was involved in a in a shooting um, that he to this day claims was accidental. He fired into a crowd and happened to shoot an, un, a, a plain clothes officer who was trying to break up this sort of fight. Um, and, and he's apparently been a model uh, prisoner for 45 years and now he's in his sixties and they let him out. Um, and that, and when we wrote about him a couple of years ago in a, in a series we did called the long wait um, where, you know, um, and so, uh, 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 there's a whole a whole lot of things like that where where that I've been proud of over, over, over the last year. Well, it is it has been too long. I want to get you back on the radio more often. Uh, I really appreciate you Let's taking the it. time to talk with us today, David. It's always great to be here, Joan. Thank you. Uh, that's going to do it for me. Driving at home with Perry Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at two thirty. Stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night. Mm-hmm.